Today's psalm comes from chapter 68, verses 1 to 10, and 33 to 35. May God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him. May you blow them away like smoke, as wax melts before the fire, may the wicked perish before God. But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Sing to God, sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him, his name is the Lord. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing. But the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. When you, God, went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook, the heavens poured down rain. Before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. You gave abundant showers, O God. You refresh your weary inheritance. Your people settled in it. And from your bounty, God, you provided for the poor. To him who rides across the highest heavens, the ancient heavens, who thunders with mighty voice, proclaim the power of God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the heavens. You, God, are awesome in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. This is the word of the Lord. So our New Testament lesson comes from 1 Peter and the fifth chapter. We'll read the whole thing, verses 1 through 14. It's printed for you in your bulletin, and it would be great if you would follow along and keep that nearby as we'll refer to it during our meditation. So this is the last of our meditations on 1 Peter, uh, which began with the first week of Advent some five weeks ago. And this last section has to do, as you see there, with uh, the elders of the flock and those that they lead. So let's read what Peter has to say here. Chapter 5. To the elders among you, Peter writes, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain but eager to serve, not lording it over those, who, those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because... God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Verse 6. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I've lived on three continents now, and of course I boast that I'm an international person, an international traveler, but when I start the story of my international travels, I like to tell people that actually my first international move was not to Korea and not to Switzerland, but from Ohio to South Carolina. And I don't know how your U.S. geography is, but you may know that those are not in different countries. But listen, let me tell you, they're different countries. I am a rust belt person. And I moved to South Carolina, and wouldn't you know it, I joined a big steeple, very aristocratic, really, church in the deep south. And so that was the context of all of my Christian relationships. And before you knew it, I was being discipled by elders from this church. And I thought, these fellas are really nice, but they're nothing like me. They're so odd. They were southern, they were wealthy, they were gentlemen, and I wasn't any of those things. (laughs) And around that big wealthy Southern American church, eventually I did bump into some hypocrisy that kind of broke my heart. But that happens in any church, right? Because we're humans and we're sinful people. Every church has it. But you know what? These elders who took the time to shepherd me, I found in these fellas not just men who were strange because of their culture and their class. I found in these handful of men people to whom I could submit myself and do it safely. Because what I learned about them was that their very lives were in submission first to Jesus, to the true shepherd. And so since Sam has had us in 1 Peter for Advent, and since this is just the one chapter we haven't covered yet, 
left over after Christmas. And since, as it turns out, I didn't plan this or even think about it, uh, but we have an election of elders coming up in just one month's time, I thought, well, of course we need then to conclude our Advent series on hope by asking this question. What does it look like when both leaders and followers, especially in the church, have the Advent hope of humble hearts? The Advent hope of humble hearts. So let's look first at the humble-hearted leader, which Peter has more to say about. And then we'll look briefly at the humble-hearted learner, the person who follows those leaders. So first, Peter addresses as you read here, the elders of the church. And he calls them to lead with humble hearts. So what's his message? What does it look like to lead with humble hearts? Before we can unpack what he actually says here, it's interesting to notice the way that Peter addresses these elders. What could he have said? Hey, listen, elders, I am Peter, the rock upon which the entire church is built. Jesus said so himself, so you better listen to me. I might have been tempted to say that if I was Peter. And he also doesn't say, look, I was in the Lord's inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And did you notice who was listed first? Peter, James, and John, right? I'm the first among an elite group of Jesus' hand-selected guys. But instead, the way he addresses them is how. He says, I am a fellow elder. I'm an elder talking to other elders. Have you ever thought of the Apostle Peter as an elder before? We don't usually think of him that way. But Peter says, look, the only real difference between us in one way is that I have seen with my very eyes the sufferings of Jesus in person. And he's not bragging about this because doesn't Peter know that part of Jesus' sufferings included Peter's own denial of Jesus in those moments when Jesus needed his loyalty most? And then Peter says that he and these elders both are together in that they will experience together the advent of Christ's glory on the last day. They will share it as fellow elders. And so if you are a leader in the church, and I hope that most of you are in one way or another, then the most fundamental thing about you is that your heart was made for the same glory that every person made in God's image was made for, longs for, hopes for. And that is for the advent return of your Lord. In one sense, all of us, leaders, followers alike, apostles, regular old elders alike, we're in this together in that we are hoping for the Lord to return. So leaders, when you and I when we find ourselves feeling a little puffed up with pride, or maybe when we find our our egos 
being a little bit fragile, too easily bruised, then I think the first thing Peter would have us ask ourselves is this. On what is my heart really set? If our hearts are ultimately set on anything that is less glorious than the coming of our king, than the advent of our Lord, then we are in trouble from the heart outward. Why are our egos so vulnerable? Well, we're looking for glory here and now, for the praise of people. But the glory that we want, the glory that we were made for, can only be ours ultimately at the Lord's second advent. And so if our hearts are not set on this hope, then everything about our leadership falls apart, doesn't it? Like what? Well, verse 2, our leadership has a fundamental dishonesty to it. We can't even be honest with ourselves about why we're leading and what we're doing here because it will turn out that it's really all about us. It's not about the people that we serve. And so before we ever embezzle money or act like a tyrant, we've already lied about the goal of our leadership to ourselves and then to the people we're leading. If it's about us, then it can't be about the Lord Jesus and his beloved people, can it? And then what else falls apart? Verse 3, he says, we'll start leading in order to lord it over people. Peter has been through all of this phony stuff before in his own leadership. He's led in order to be a lord. He thought, wow, this is a real a real promotion from just being a fisherman. I got to be an, a disciple of the Messiah. This should give me some authority. He's become drunk on that authority before, but he's been rebuked and restored and forgiven, and now he's leading from love alone. And he's calling you and he's calling me when we lead to lead from love alone. And Peter's favorite word for this kind of leadership is a common Bible word for leadership. It's shepherding. It's shepherding. And so elders are shepherds. Pastor, of course, literally means shepherd. All leaders shepherd. And a shepherd has a few aspects to it. Let me just sketch them so you're aware. Shepherding means, of course, feeding, right? Giving nutrition from God's word. Speaking truth and grace and doing it in love. Knowing when you need mother's milk and when you need solid food. So shepherding means feeding. And then second, it means giving safety. It entails sometimes using the little hook on the shepherd's staff and pulling people back from the edge when they're about to fall off a cliff and self-destruct. So sometimes shepherding can feel a little bit, you know, interventionist, right? It can feel like tough love sometimes. Shepherding also means first aid. (laughs) To be a leader means that you're the first responder, in people's brokenness. It means bandaging up the wounds of sheep who who are hurt, whether they're hurt because they've wandered off or whether they're wounded because of other people, whether it's their own fault or whether they've been harmed by someone else, whether inside or outside the flock, you're giving first aid. Fourth, shepherding means that you're welcoming. You are providing a sense of the sheepfold. 
You are helping people to want to not wander out of the sheepfold, but to have a sense of safety and home. And then fifth, shepherding means that all this personal, touchy-feely stuff is true, but it also means shepherding is, is also a business. And that means there's going to be some counting sheep and some moving sheep around and some communicating to sheep and some planning for the nurture and the well-being of sheep. What we call a little awkwardly, you know, the vision and the administration. This is also part of being a shepherd in the Bible. David is a shepherd, and he's a shepherd how? By being king, and it involves administration. But the problem is that so many times, shepherding ends up being a little bit bureaucratic, right? In our capitalist economy, right, everything else functions on efficiency, and so it's so easy to abandon the work of a shepherd, whether we're pastors, elders, or Sunday school teachers, and trade that in for the mastery of management, for example. If we leaders merely manage then you sheep will be malnourished as a result, more prone to wander, lacking a sense of belonging, wounded but not bandaged in time, and without guidance and a sense of purpose. And actually, there's a great temptation for us leaders in becoming managers because management means that we get to lord it over people if we're not careful. But if we're imitating the good shepherd, if we're imitating Peter and Paul and James as they imitate Christ, then the shape of our leadership will look like the Lord's own loving leadership. Can you imagine, by by the way, the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd, becoming a modern managerial bureaucrat and walking around with a clipboard and, and trying for optimal efficiency being a kind of detached overseer and then calling it shepherding, it's almost impossible to imagine, right? And you become a ministry, or you rather you come to a ministry manager uh, in order to work out technical problems, and if you're lucky, you'll get a technical solution to that problem. But why do you come to a shepherd and an overseer of your soul? Well, you come in order to learn alongside a humble leader how to live, how to love, how to lead like the Lord Jesus himself, the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. So for those who are elected next month or re-elected as elders, for your pastors, for all of you who lead, the calling of Peter is to have the Advent hope of humble hearts. And this humble-hearted hope calls us to be a little shepherd under the chief shepherd, under the Lord Jesus, and to seek ultimately the crown of glory from him alone. You will receive it. Lord willing, I will receive it on that day because you and I have become more and more familiar with the shepherding ways, both the tough and tender ways of our Lord Jesus, the Good Shepherd. And year after year, as we grow into all these different leadership callings, 
people will be able to say to us, you know, you're human, but you remind me more and more of my Lord Jesus with every passing year. So that's the humble-hearted leader. What about the humble-hearted learner? Because Peter does, in verse 5, briefly address what he calls younger folks. Peter says to us learners, which again, we all are, he says, you must clothe yourselves in humility and submit to your elders. Anytime we try to understand the Bible's teaching about submission in the 21st century, immediately we think, do I really have to submit? What if, what if, what if, what if, right? And the reality is that we aren't called to agree with everything that our elders say and do. In fact, we're called to submit to them insofar as they have followed Peter's lead, right? If they've renounced the lust for lordship and that that's evident in their lives. If they've learned from their own chief shepherd, Jesus. And again, there have been many times in my life especially as a 20-something, when I've looked at a handful of elders in my church and I've, they've begun discipling me and I've thought, man, you are really different from me. But the ones that are worth following, the ones that I submitted to at a deep level, were the ones who, however different and odd they were, nevertheless, They reminded me of Jesus. And so I was safe to submit to them. And it's important to realize, isn't it, that Christ-likeness can show up in a person of any generation, in any culture, with any temperament or personality, and at any level of status or wealth or success. Christ-likeness shows up in all kinds of people. And so when we as a church pick our elders and our pastors and our teachers and our leaders, when we submit ourselves to someone who disciples us, this is what we're longing for. When we submit to them, what is it we're submitting to? Well, we're submitting to the Jesus that has gotten inside of them and is now working itself out in their personality and skills and gifting. And in fact, whether you're overseeing or being overseen, whether you're shepherding or being shepherded, Peter says that, verse 5, one important truth covers all of this. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to those who are humble. And so Peter calls us, verse 6, to humble ourselves under God's mighty right hand with a humble heart, full of hope, and a hope specifically that he will lift us up, that he will exalt us in due time. In due time. Isn't that what Advent is about? Saying to ourselves, saying to one another, in due time. This is the key to having a humble, hopeful heart. To have an in due time kind of heart. When is Jesus going to turn all of our sorrow and suffering into rejoicing and glory? In due time. 
When will every leader be a humble servant and none of them anymore be domineering lords? In due time. When will you be exalted from your humble estate to a a place of great privilege and entrusted with great things? Well, in due time. When will you and everyone else in your life be so utterly secure in their identity and in their position in Christ that they're delighted to lead without ever having to lord it over other people? When will we be like this? In due time. When will we be able to fully submit to others without any shred of bitterness or envy? In due time. And when will our days of anxiety, Peter addresses this, both because of the burden of leading in a fallen world and because of our reservations about following fallen people in a fallen world. When will all this anxiety be done away with? In due time. When, we're our, when will our days of struggling to resist the evil one, verses 8 and 9, Peter speaks of this, who wants, who wants us to be puffed up with pride, when will all of that be over? In due time. When will all of our family ties with the whole household of faith be evident to us all? When will we be able to care for one another as if we were flesh and blood? And fully, in due time, when will we each be finally steadfast and firm, not wandering off at every opportunity like lost sheep, but confident in Christ and secure in his sheepfold, in due time, soon. And so soon that we can live right now as if it were already time. And in the meantime, then we practice being the family, right? Not the corporation or the firm, but the family of God. And we do it with the hope of humble Advent hearts. And we learn, as Peter learned to call Silas, did you notice this at the end here? Verse 12, it's just Silas, but he calls him brother. And he says, he's a significant person in my life and in yours. We also learn to accept the fact that, look, some people are fathers and some people are mothers and others are daughters and sons at different times. And we are comfortable with calling them such. Peter does this with Mark in verse 13. Because under the banner of family, we can finally just toss our pride out the window, right? And what matters in a family is that everybody gets a chance to thrive. And we look out for the thriving of everybody. And so when all of us, old and young, mature and on the way to maturity, elders and pastors and leaders, and everybody who follows, when we can finally see each other as sisters and brothers, as mothers and fathers, when we can finally see ourselves as under our great elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, and under our glorious Heavenly Father, and finally, without any hint of either inferiority or superiority, then we'll be able, verse 14, to greet one another, right? With the kiss of love. You can't just manufacture this kind of humility. It has to be worked into us by God's grace.
And what could possibly please the one who gave himself for us? Who Peter is at pains to say, suffered for our sakes. And whose advent will put an end to all of our suffering. What could please this one? Like living as those who just love to kiss one another with the kiss of love and true humility. The only way this can really happen to us is if we have experienced the kiss of love from the Father through the lips of the Son in his humble, self-giving life and death for us. I wonder, as you look to a new year and you think, how am I going to lead? Oh, I need to lead like Jesus. Okay. Yeah, but have you felt the Lord's kiss of love on your cheek. A kiss from the Father himself. Well then, if you have, then you're ready to lead and to learn with humble and hopeful hearts. Father, it's our desire that we learn and that we lead in this way. And that all of our learning and leading would be done in submission to our Savior who is so safe, so kind of a shepherd in whom we are so secure, who is courageous to pull us back from the cliff, who feeds us, who nourishes us, who gives himself to us completely. As we celebrate that, and even as we gather around the table in a few moments, may we sense that he is giving himself afresh to us as he did finally at the cross and communing with us and pouring himself into us as our great shepherd once more. Thank you for not only for his example, but for his saving love and his action. May we humbly follow him in the days ahead. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen.